I invite you to open your Bible or one of the pew Bibles for the reading of God's Word in the book of the Acts, chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. As we continue to make our way through the book of the Acts, this is the 35th sermon in this series, and as you've heard me say on numerous occasions, it's important important to keep up in this series because the book of Acts is a narrative. It is an unfolding uh, story, as it were, a historical record. So one sermon builds on the other, and you miss one, uh, you kind of fall through the cracks. You can always pick it up on the internet if you're away, if you miss, if you're in a coma or something. Uh, you can pick it up later on the internet, and I encourage you to do that. But let us now ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and hearing of His holy word. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for the wonders of your love and grace toward us through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who came into the world to seek and to save the lost. And so we pray in his name now that you would send forth the Holy Spirit upon us afresh to open our minds and to open our hearts, to give us spiritual illumination and understanding that we would receive what you say because your word is truth. Grant us grace to live as people of your truth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who himself is the way, the truth, and the life. To the glory of your name, amen. Amen. Let us hear the word of God. It is written. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, glory, dominion, and power forever and ever. Amen. This morning I want us to look at this brief passage, Acts 11, verses 27 through 30, as though we are looking into a mirror, so to speak, to see ourselves in it, and in seeing ourselves in it, seeing how nearly we conform to what we see in this passage concerning the early church, the first century church gathered in Jerusalem where it originated and now in Antioch of Syria. What we see is a vibrant, thriving congregation in both cases which are which is a good example to us. And the first century church was, we got three basic points. You know, my sermons usually don't have any point, but we got three points this, this morning. 
The first century church was missional. The first century was the first century church was connectional. And the first century church was Presbyterian. <laughs> now, d- just hang on. Don't worry about that. I'll explain it when we get to point number three. But before we go into these three points, let's remember that the foundation for all of them, the foundation which was at the heart of the apostles' preaching and teaching, was the proclamation and the reception of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for the salvation of sinners. Now, last week we read in the immediately preceding passage that, quote, the Lord Jesus had been preached and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Now, that's what the true church of Jesus Christ is all about, what the true Christian faith is all about, receiving and resting upon Christ alone for our salvation. And last Sunday, in the immediately preceding passage, we read also that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And Christians, true Christians, are those who belong to and who are inseparably identified with Christ himself in a bond of saving faith, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. There is no true church, there is no true Christian life apart from true faith in Jesus Christ crucified and risen as your personal Lord and Savior. Now, now I begin with this, this foundational point because in this brief passage, Acts eleven twenty seven through 30, there is no mention of Jesus. But you see, this is an important point for all of Bible study. Every page of the Bible, Jesus is there. And Christ crucified, risen, and ascended is in this passage, in between the lines, so to speak, underneath the text, if you will, because this passage illustrates the life of a faithful, committed congregation, joyful believers in cheerful obedience to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this passage. They knew that he had given himself for them on the cross, and they therefore were ready and willing to give themselves to him. The church of the first century was missional, connectional, and Presbyterian. The scripture says, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now these were Christian prophets, prophets in the, of the new covenant, 
Christian prophets of the first century apostolic era. The Holy Spirit empowered them to foretell future events. In this case, a great famine over all the world, which really means over all the known world of the Roman Empire. Now, this kind of foretelling by the Spirit is another example of what we've seen before in the book of Acts. Another example of the extraordinary supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit, which was given specifically and only to the apostles and Christian prophets of the first century as the church was being established and was spreading beyond Jerusalem. But here's where I want us to focus for point number one, missional. When the disciples in Antioch of Syria, mainly a Gentile congregation, heard this prophecy given by Agabus, a Jewish Christian from Jerusalem, the disciples in Antioch immediately, spontaneously responded. There was no hesitation. These, the scripture says, these disciples determined everyone according to his own ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. They were on go, mission ready to respond. Now there are various, various forms of mission. The word mission comes from the Latin word which simply means send. Jesus sends his disciples, us, into or on a mission in a variety of ways. The mission work might be primarily evangelistic preaching, or it might be primarily meeting physical human needs, such as a medical mission, along with the sharing of the gospel. Or it might be, as in this case, a mission relief in Jesus' name, such as collecting and sending money for famine relief. But the point is that the, the true church of Jesus understands that mission in the name of Jesus is at the heart of its existence. One of its primary reasons for existence. The true church lives on mission, in mission, in one way or another, in various ways. It responds to the needs around it. The gospel of Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners, the forgiveness of sins, and redemption into life everlasting is the universal and first need. Every other need, physical and material, is secondary to the need of forgiveness of sins through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But we see also in the life and ministry of Christ, our Savior, the meeting of earthly needs. We are commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are commanded to love, as John writes in his first epistle, not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The letter of James says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, 
And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So the true church is mission-minded, mission-ready, mission-responsive to the spiritual and material needs of the world for the sake of bearing witness to Jesus Christ and advancing his kingdom on earth. And therefore, the church in Antioch is an example for us, a thriving, flourishing, vibrant church looks outward, not inward. Think about the church in Antioch. What we've read so far is that it was a new community of of new believers, mainly Gentiles, who had been converted out of darkness into the light of Jesus Christ. And last Sunday we read that when the Gentiles in Antioch heard the gospel, a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And when Barnabas arrived from Jerusalem and saw the grace of God. He saw how the grace of God was bringing people to Christ and building up the church. He was glad. And then there was so much work to do in overseeing the growing church that Barnabas went to Tarsus to get Saul. And then Saul, Paul, and Barnabas stayed in Antioch for a whole year and taught a great many people. Verse 26. It was an exciting time in the church of Antioch. There were conversions of a lot of people. The church was growing numerically. People were rejoicing in their salvation. And they had great teaching, great Bible studies, led by Barnabas and Paul. Imagine. And with all those good things happening in the life of the church, it might have been very easy for that church to have become focused on itself, turned in on itself. You know, when those Christians in Antioch heard about the needs of the believers in Judea, might have been really easy for them to say, well, now hang on a minute. Hold on just a minute. We got a lot going on here. We're growing rapidly. We're probably going to have a lot of needs here. We're going to have to meet right here in the future. Who knows? The the, the famines that are coming across the region, they're likely to affect us. So just hang on, just hang on a minute. Hang on a minute before we before we extend ourselves out there too far. Now, they might have said that in the name of good stewardship, but they didn't. They said, our brothers and sisters in Judea are in need. Let's do what we can right now. This is where we see Jesus Christ crucified, risen, reigning in heaven in this passage. He was and is the self-giving Savior. His laying down of his life for his friends in self-sacrificial love is to be the pattern for his disciples. The outpouring of his love and grace and mercy upon the cross 
for our salvation calls forth the outpouring of love and mercy from us through the resources which he has entrusted to us. His love and care for his bride, the church, is likewise to be expressed through us as we care for fellow members of his body, the church, throughout the world. And so, verse 29, the disciples in Antioch determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. The spontaneous, cheerful readiness and willingness of the church in Antioch to respond to the need with each member cheerfully giving according to his or her ability for the sake of relieving the needs of Christians elsewhere, for the sake of building up the body of Christ elsewhere, is an example of a missional church. In other words, their experience of the Christian faith and life was not all about them. They were not turned in on themselves. And the fact is, God does not need a church that is turned in on itself. That church has no reason to exist. God sent His Son into the world to be the sacrifice for our sins, and His Son sends us, one way or another, into the world to share that gospel and to show forth His love, grace, and mercy in the world. And when a local congregation forgets that, you can forget and turn out the lights. We also learn from this passage a couple of principles for our financial stewardship. Number one is each according to his ability. As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, it's not a matter of what you don't have, it's a matter of what you do have. And that's a principle of proportionality each according to his ability. And the other is simply, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, God loves a cheerful giver. And that's, that's a reflection of the fact that our God is a cheerful giver. He gave his only begotten son, and he did not do that begrudgingly. He gives his grace and mercy cheerfully. If we are to fl- reflect his image, we likewise are called to do the son, the same. But I want to commend you. I want to commend you, the members, the elders, the deacons, Covenant Presbyterian Church, and give all glory to God. I, mission support locally and globally is very much a part of who we are financially and hands-on. And let's continue uh, to become that church increasingly. That's the church we want to be. And I I was so grateful to see the spontaneous response of you, the congregation, to the needs of our sister churches in Thibodeau and Homa following Hurricane Ida. The word went out and you responded. Some of you made, you know, you made trips to one of our big box stores or another and got a bunch of stuff and brought it here. Others of you gave... Financially, many of you probably did both. I commend you for that. 
Let's be that church and let's increasingly become that kind of church. You can see in the bulletin you are supporting numerous mission works locally and globally. Every one of them is centered in the gospel. Every one of them. Now, not everybody can go on a mission trip. Not everybody can serve on a local work project as as some of you will be doing uh, tomorrow since that project was, was postponed from Saturday. It's going to be tomorrow. But you can put yourself in the offering plate. You can put yourself in the offering plate and say to the Lord, here I am, send me. And you can offer up daily prayers for the work of missions locally and around the world. Let's continue to follow the example of the church in Antioch. We don't exist for ourselves, but for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ and His kingdom throughout the world. Another example from the church in Jerusalem and in Antioch, number two, they were connectional. The true body of Jesus Christ is connected as the body of Christ. Now remember last Sunday's sermon. This is the importance of staying up with the series. The leaders of the Jerusalem church heard about the conversion of the Gentiles in Antioch of Syria and the growth of the church there. And they sent Barnabas from Jerusalem to check it out. What does that tell you? It tells you that the first century Christians understood that they were connected. They had an organic, integral relationship with one another across racial Jew-Gentile lines and across geographical lines. Antioch of Syria is 300 miles north of Jerusalem. First century. No cars, no trains, no planes. You could sail up the coast or you could walk 20 miles for 15 days. Nevertheless, the Jerusalem church sent Barnabas to Antioch to check out what the Lord was doing there and to make sure that they had everything they needed in terms of spiritual oversight. That's connectional. In very practical terms, they were living as the body of Christ, members of one another, those separated by 300 miles and racial lines. Now, watch again our passage today. Prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. That's biblical language because Jerusalem is high on a mountain. They really went up north to Antioch. The word of the Lord was spoken. There was going to be a great need due to a famine, especially in the regions of Judea. The Christians in Antioch said, we're on it. We're going to do what we can do by the Lord's grace. They understood the connection that they had with their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, watch this, had provided for their spiritual welfare. Now Antioch was going to provide for their material welfare. Connectional. 
Now today, congregations of differing denominations or associations are connected by various and different organizational structures, and I'm not concerned about that this morning. But, But some form, some way of connection matters because it's biblical. And we, with our Presbyterian government, are connectional in a denominationally organizational structure. So you see, along with us, there were EPC congregations from all over the United States who contributed to the hurricane relief in South Louisiana. Next Sunday, if the Lord wills, I will be preaching at the installation service of a new pastor, in Hope EPC in Longview, Texas. So we are connectional within our denominational, organizational, governmental structure. That's good, and it's biblical. It provides resources, fellowship, mission cooperation, and accountability. But being connectional goes beyond denominational ties, of course. The body of Christ is one throughout the world, across racial lines, across socioeconomic and cultural lines, across geographical lines, across denominational lines, provided we stay within the boundaries of biblical doctrine. That really ought to mean something practically. Across the street, Across town, across the river, depending on which way you're looking at it, from which perspective, and across the ocean. We are a local expression of the one body of Christ, and we need to remind ourselves that in Christ we are connected to brothers and sisters, most of whom don't look like us don't talk like us, don't share the same cultural background or national identity. And that's because Jesus is in this text. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And if we're connected to Christ, by faith, then we are connected to his redeemed people throughout the world. That's part of what it means to be a biblical church, thriving, flourishing, under the lordship of Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. And number three, the first century church was Presbyterian. Now, everybody listen. People out there in internet land, listen, that's not with a capital P. That's not with a capital P. I'm not talking about a denomination. I'm not talking about a denomination. When they took up the collection in Antioch to send to the Christians in Judea, The scripture says they did so, sending it 
to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The word elders is the Greek word presbyteros, plural of presbyter, from which we get our word Presbyterian, which simply means governed or led by elders. The point here is that in the first century in Jerusalem, in all the new congregations, the church of Jesus Christ was led by respected, recognized, responsible leadership, of spiritually mature men designated as elders. And and this pattern for church leadership in the New Covenant was based upon, I mean, it, it just simply was carried over from the Old Testament Israelite community, which was led and governed by the elders of the Israelite community. And this is the reason that when the Apostle Paul, on his missionary journeys, you know, he he wasn't simply an itinerant evangelist, so, so to speak. He was a church planter. He preached the gospel. God called forth his elect to faith in Jesus Christ. A church was formed, and in every town, every church, Paul always appointed elders overseers of the congregation. Now, brothers and sisters, this shows us that from the very beginning of the New Testament church, there was structure, there was order, there was recognized leadership And it shows us, contra so much of American Christianity these days, it shows us that the true Christian life is not a willy-nilly, private, individualistic, do-it-yourself spiritual program. Although that's very popular idea these days, it's a very bad idea. Because this, <laughs> this idea that, 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 that living the Christian life is a, is a private, individualistic, do-it-yourself spiritual program, that is absolutely foreign to and indeed antithetical to the New Testament. You will find it nowhere. There was church government in the early church from the very beginning. And so submitting yourself to the leadership, government, oversight, nurture, and discipline of elders is part and parcel of the biblical Christian life. And note here that the word elders in verse 30, is plural. There was a plurality, a group in leadership. There was not just one person in charge. So I want you to see that our 
Presbyterian form of government with a plurality of elders has its basis in Scripture. But I want us also to, to grow in our understanding of this. You know, our membership vows, sacred vows, include the vow to submit ourselves to the spiritual oversight of this church session. Now, that's a foreign concept probably to most Christians in America today. But that vow simply underscores what the New Testament teaches about being a member of a true church. It means being a member of a body and being a member of a family, a household that has leadership. And therefore, it places a huge responsibility upon the ruling elders and the teaching elders, the pastors. I'm thankful. I'm very thankful. We're blessed to have godly and wise and gifted men who serve as, as ruling elders. That's biblical. But the first letter of Peter tells us that they, the ruling elders, together with the pastors, are only under-shepherds of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for the sheep. So there, 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 there it is in verse 30. You see, Jesus, crucified and risen. Jesus, the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, is there in verse 30 as he governs, rules, protects, provides, guides his flock, through the under-shepherds, the elders. So even here, when we're looking at church leadership in the first century or in covenant in the 21st century, we cannot ignore or overlook or escape the fact that the church belongs to Jesus Christ bought with His blood. He governs, guides, protects, provides for His flock by His Word and Spirit through the godly leadership of elders presbyters it's biblical and so church membership isn't simply a matter of showing up on Sunday but it's a part of it 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 it, it, it requires coming into this family with this leadership under the headship of Jesus Christ. And a congregation can be only as spiritually healthy and strong as the health and strength of her elders. Places a huge spiritual responsibility upon your elders and pastors, and I would implore you to pray for us. Pray for us. Because the task is not to administrate an organization. The task is to shepherd the flock of God, which he bought with his own blood. Pray for us. Missional, connectional, Presbyterian with a little p, centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ, First century Jerusalem and Antioch, 21st century covenant in Monroe. Let's grow.
That's the church we want to be and increasingly to become. In Jesus' name and to the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word which instructs us in your truth. And we pray that you would help us to grow, to be the people you call us to be, that, that we as your body might grow into the full maturity of, the, of Jesus, the Son of God. We ask it in his name, for his sake, to the glory of your name. Amen. Please stand as we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, affirming our faith, reading responsively from the Heidelberg Catechism. Dearly beloved Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort is that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. At the cross of his own precious blood, he has fully paid for all my sins and has set me free from the dominion of hell. He also watches over me so well that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Indeed, all things must work together to finish the purpose for my salvation. Therefore, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live for him. Amen.